Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 13, chapter 12. Got all ahead of myself there. <clears throat> Looking at the patriarchs as we continue to explore the life of Abraham, Abram, as recorded in these early chapters of Genesis. And just by a very, very brief review, remembering that Abram was called while in Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a land that God was going to show him, not having a map, a course, no star to lead him, nothing. He was told that he would become the father of a great nation, that his name would be made great, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through his name. These promises that are extended to Abram in his call include the three components that explain the thematic development of all of Genesis as well as the entirety of the Pentateuch, that is, land, nation, and blessing. I'll continue to repeat this because these are paramount in our understanding of what it is God is doing in the lives of these patriarchs and what it is they will pass on to their descendants under the leadership of Moses when they exit out of Egypt as a nation, a peculiar people chosen by God. So Abram's name, excuse me, the land of promise for the people of God, a nation, Israel, promised to Abram, eventually realized under the leadership of Moses, there's this promise of great personal and global blessing. Abram's name was made great. He has, he has been seen as a hero of the faith for Israel and for Christians for thousands of years. The promise of this global blessing is realized in the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, would come through the ancestry of Abram. And so as Abram was called while in Ur of the Chaldeans, we see this big map here, and Ur is all the way down here in the corner, and he ventured up to the north in Haran, and then eventually down into Canaan. This journey was 800 miles. I misspoke last week when I talked about the journey from Haran down to Canaan as 800 miles. So upon entering the land of Canaan, God spoke to Abram and said, this is the land that I'm going to give to your descendants. So along this way, as Abram is now in Canaan, he builds two altars, one in Shechem and the other in Bethel. Both locations were already used by Canaanites in the worship of their idols, their little g-gods. So as we look at this map, this is a picture of the area where Abram would have journeyed and eventually stayed and built altars there. So Abram is celebrated as a great man of faith, some 2,000 years later in the writing of the book of Hebrews, where uh, there's one more map I need to show you. This is a picture of the modern Middle East. This is where Ur would have been down near the Persian Gulf and the area of Kuwait up into northern Syria and down into what is now Jerusalem and Israel proper. So what was written in the book of Hebrews some 2,000 years later is by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as 
promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So when Abram left Ur to go to the land that God would show him, Abram likely assumed that he was going to get there and he was just going to set up shop and he was now going to inherit this land. So as we think about the journey of faith that Abram began all the way back in Ur, up through the period that he stayed in Haran, and then eventually down into Canaan. A few points to highlight here. He left absolutely everything to follow the call of God. He left his tribe, the land of his people. He left his clan, which were his people proper. He left his family, all of his relatives, with the exception of his father who went with him and then later died in Haran, his wife and his nephew Lot. So leaving everything to follow God is the call of the gospel before there ever was a call of the gospel. So in this way, Abram is the epitome of a life of faith and leaving it all to follow the call of God. Secondly, when Abram was 75 years old, he arrived in Canaan. It's a pretty advanced age, even given the age that he was in, having already been established in Ur to follow this call from a God he did not know that he just had revealed to him. And at 75, midway through his life, the midlife crisis period, if you will, he leaves his family and his home and his people, and he goes in, in pursuit of the land that God was going to show him. Thirdly, at the time that he left, he was childless, 75, and we're told that his wife Sarai was barren. So he is going to be the father of a great nation, yet he's advanced in age, married to a woman who can't have children, and has no children at this point. An incredible amount of faith that Abram exhibited in making this journey. Fourthly, and I think even most more significant, is this. Upon arriving in the promised land, it is a land that is already inhabited. It isn't just a blank space for him to call home and to set up shop and to live there until his time on earth ends and to see his family grow. Unlike Adam and Noah who established their lives in an uninhabited world, Abram is in the land of what would become Israel's perpetual enemy. If you remember, when we studied the Tower of Babel, when God scattered the peoples and confused them, from their one common language into a multitude of languages, they took with them the idols that they worshipped at Babel and they set up their idolatrous worship in all the places that they would eventually stop. This is where Abram finds himself now. And as we know from our study, that the Canaanites had a plethora of idols that they worshipped. And it's very likely that Abram encountered these altars when he was traveling through the land of Canaan and set up, building his own altars as a sign of his worship to God. So Adam's, excuse me, Abram's faith is legendary, but what we're going to see is that his faith is going to be tested. We're going to see how he fails, yet he is not defeated. He is simply going to learn what he He's going to, he simply learns why he can continue to trust and obey God even though he will do this imperfectly. So after arriving in Canaan, traveling the length of the land of promise, building a couple of altars, Abram is presented with a significant issue, one which has plagued the 
one which has plagued and continues to plague the arid regions of the world, and that is the problem of famine. So as we look at our outline, we continue now in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Follow along with me, if you will. Verse 10, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Verse 16, Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Abram called, excuse me, then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So as we continue in this passage, we look at number six in our outline, and that is the test. The test is not found in the existence of a famine, but in the circumstances in Abram's life as a result of the famine and the decisions that he makes. Now, going back to verse 10, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So famine was nothing new in this portion of the world. In fact, we learn through our study of Genesis that not only Abram, but also Isaac and Jacob would also travel down to Egypt because of the plentiful nature of food that was available there. It was not uncommon for many of the areas in this region to go to Egypt because food was easier to grow there. So traveling to Egypt for help was very common because of the Nile River, its annual periods of flooding, which would irrigate the land, which made the likelihood of crops continuously productive. So famine was almost, not entirely, but it was almost non-existent in Egypt because of the Nile River in its ability to irrigate the land and allow for food to grow. In fact, it was inscripted at the gates entering into Egypt, certain of the foreigners who know not how they may, how they may live have come, their countries are starving. So this inscription indicates that Egypt is well known as a place of food when much of the world around them is starving because of famine, and Egypt opened up their doors to these countries that would be starving and they sold their food and made all kinds of money from that, as we would learn went much, much later in our study of Joseph. Now, what is missing from this narrative as we look at 
Abram's decision to go to Egypt because of the famine, what is missing is very simply this. We are told nowhere in this narrative that Abram sought the Lord's will, his direction, his guidance, his help. Nothing. Abram does not even seek God's intervention in this very common problem. There's a famine. Abram decides to go to Egypt totally eliminating any kind of communication with this God that he has left his entire world behind in order to follow, he doesn't even think about God, doesn't even consult God, doesn't even ask God anything about this. So as a 75-year-old man, Abram is willing to leave everything behind to follow God, trust in these remarkable promises made to him, Stake a claim and a land already possessed. He did that by virtue of building the altars. But a lack of food seemingly enables Abram not to deny God, but to forget God's call and his ability to intervene. Now think about how surprising it seems to the casual reader that Abram would do what he is doing and in the face of this severe famine, not even think about asking God for help. This is where we find Abram. Abram didn't lose his faith. He just didn't seek God's help in dealing with the issue of famine. Abram does what comes natural, as others in the Negev would do, that region south of Canaan, the wilderness area. He simply travels to Egypt for help with food. So how easy it is to forget that we have been saved by a supernatural, nothing is impossible God who delights in answering our prayers and demonstrating to us His infinite power, love, mercy, and grace in our lives. And instead, we just do what comes naturally. Think about it. Some of us have been saved out of very significant pagan backgrounds and we face a difficulty in our life and we don't even think about this God who is able to do the impossible. We just do what comes natural. This is where we find Abram doing what comes naturally on his own deciding to go to Egypt and to seek help with the famine and in doing so, letter A, Abram devises a plan. Abram's deception that we see here in verses 11 through 13. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now, ladies, imagining your husband saying such a thing to you. (laughs) Excuse me. I don't think Abram was exhibiting a lot of faith in what Sarai would do. He was just exerting his authority over her and saying, hey, look. They're going to kill me if they know you're my wife, so you need to tell them that I'm your sister, so they're going to let me live. I don't know what's going to happen to you. I'm not really concerned about what's going to happen to you. I'm thinking about me and the certain death that I fear is going to come my way. 
So Abram is doing the natural thing by going to Egypt for famine relief. He's hatched a natural plan rooted in fear and self-preservation. It is clear that Abram is in complete control of his decisions and does not seek God's guidance or his help in any way at all. He basically says, I'm pretty smart. I've got this thing figured out. Just say what I say and it's all going to go great. So he's fearful that the Egyptians may kill him so that Pharaoh can take Sarai as his wife. But if he presents Sarai as his sister, they're going to treat him well. This is the plan. A few things to highlight here. Number one, apparently Sarai possesses great beauty and is desirable to those in great power. So this is not an unusual reality. Kings and rulers in the ancient culture would often take whatever and whomever they desired because of the power they possessed. Now we think about that and we think, man, that's that's a pretty crummy place to live, right? Well, it still happens in many parts of the world today where there are dictators and there is an absolute rule. They These guys will do whatever they want. They'll take whomever they want because nobody has the ability to stop them. By the way, this is exactly what David did with Bathsheba. He looked upon her, saw her beauty, said, I gotta have it, took her, devised a plan to cover up what he had done, got her husband killed, took her as his wife, and that was not good in God's kingdom. But this is what people in power will do, and this is what Abram is fearful of, and why he has hatched this plan. Secondly, Abram's primary goal here is self-preservation. The desire for self-preservation is understandable, but again, Abram has not sought God's guidance, God's help, God's intervention, nothing. As he's devised this plan, he simply has put together the best thing he can think of and is going to go with it and hope for the best. Thirdly, Abram is telling a half-truth. Sarai is, in fact, his half-sister, But she is his wife. So we learn this as we look in Genesis 20, a couple of weeks down the way, when Abraham meets Abimelech, who is the king of Gerar, and he tells the same story to to Abimelech as he does to the Egyptians. We read this in Genesis 20, 11 to 13. Abram said to Abimelech, Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So Sarai is Abram's half-sister, his father's daughter, from a different mother. And as we think, ugh, different world, there was no law, there was not yet any prohibition about intermarriage. There's still this process of populating the earth. But Abram's fear and desire for self-preservation have overwhelmed him, and it has convinced him that telling this half-truth is his best chance of going into Egypt, getting the food that he needs, and leaving with his wife in tow. Now, I don't think that Abram is making a conscious decision to deny God, but the point is, he never sought God in any solution to the circumstances that he finds himself in, 
And it never occurred to him that he was potentially risking far more than he could even begin to imagine. Again, Abram was leaning on what was natural. Abram was playing off the well-known custom that is called fratriarchy, which was common in ancient cultures, still common in some cultures in the Far East and in the Middle East today. Here's a description of this fratriarchy. Where there is no father, the brother assumes legal guardianship of a sister, particularly with respect to obligations and responsibilities and arranging marriage on her behalf. Therefore, whoever wished to take Sarai in marriage would have to negotiate with her brother. So this is what Abram is thinking. So if I present myself as her brother and I am the legal guardian for her, then these individual suitors would negotiate with me and while this is going on, I can accumulate the food that I need and then never give Sarai to anybody to be married and then we'll leave Egypt full with food in tow and everything will be just hunky-dory. That's the plan. That's Abram's thinking. So it's a very dangerous game that he's playing here. He's assuming that he has time to carry all of this out and that his plan is going to be lived out exactly as he has conjured up in his mind. Have you ever conjured up natural plans and wonder what the heck happened when the wheels fell off and you're going, I never expected this. Clearly, Abram is not exhibiting the same incredible faith in God that enabled him to leave Ur and trust in the promises that God has made. So, Abram's deception is now followed by, letter B, Sarai's abduction. Abram's clever and calculated plan of deception unravels before his very eyes because Pharaoh is not going to negotiate for Sarai. He's just going to say, she's mine. I want her, and I can have her, and you can't stop me. Verse 14 and 15, it came about when, excuse me, 14 to 16. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. So upon arriving into Egypt, Pharaoh's lookouts, if you will, have spotted the beautiful Sarai. She died at 120 at this point. She's probably in her 50s or 60s, which would be kind of like the 30s or 40s. And she's still a very, very desirable, a very, very beautiful woman. And a powerful man like Pharaoh is going to see something like that and say, i got to have it. And so this is exactly what he does. So you can imagine how the lookouts and the officials in Pharaoh's court are eager to please their Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, And so they report of this new woman who has come into town, and lo and behold, he sees her and he desires to have her. So they, like Abram, would do most anything to garner the favor and approval of such a powerful man. So one of the keys in this section that we're going to look at here is the middle part of verse 15, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. 
Now, <clears throat> we have no idea how much time there was in this. Was it hours? Was it a few days? Was it a few weeks? We have no idea. We're never told. But there is no mention of Pharaoh meeting with Abram and negotiating a price for this beautiful woman. There's no mention of how long it took before Sarai was taken into his household. But the reality is this. Sarai is now in the home of Pharaoh. She is in the royal palace. Now what we know about ancient cultures is that Pharaoh would have a wife who would be seen as the queen, but he would have a large harem. And if he ever wanted to replace the existing queen with somebody from his harem, that process would generally take a significant amount of time. We have no idea what stage Sarai eventually ended up in. We'll see something interesting in just a few in just a few verses down the road here but this is the problem abram thinks i'm going to go in i'm going to stay for a while i'm going to negotiate with some people for sarai i'm going to give some food we'll get everything we need and then we're going to leave but it didn't happen his wife is now in the home in the royal palace of pharaoh certainly this is not what abram expected and one can only imagine what abram is thinking at this point Pharaoh simply took what he wanted and gave to Abram what he desired. Sheep and oxen, female donkeys, camels and servants. A couple of notes here. The female donkeys were especially sought after because they were much easier to ride and much more, much easier to domesticate than were the male counterparts. It was also new that camels were introduced into the domesticated livestock Arena, So to have domesticated camels was a sign of great wealth and of great position. So instantly, Abram became very self-sufficient. He became very, very rich. And yet it cost him his wife, Sarai, who is now in the palace. Boy, there's a lesson there, isn't there? We can think we want and we need all that the world has to offer, but we can never fully appreciate the cost of what that might actually bring to our lives. Faithless, deceitful Abram was inundated with luxurious things while his wife spent countless days and nights in the royal palace of Pharaoh. You would have to think that God would have warned Abram about this very thing happening if Abram would have sought the Lord, prayed to the Lord, cried out to the Lord, asked for direction as it related to this plan or this problem of famine. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. But God's plan would not be thwarted. He will not allow Abram's faithlessness to jeopardize his sovereign plan. God had a sovereign plan that would not and could not be stopped. And even Abram's deceitful plan here is not going to stop God's sovereign will. Abram is completely without control. He must sit idly by while his wife is in the royal palace. And this is truly the greatest challenge to faith. That inability to control circumstances because we're just completely powerless to do so. Our natural desire is to control as much of our lives as we possibly can. And in the areas where we lack control, we typically worry, we become anxious, 
And it's not uncommon for us to become very overwhelmed by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, surprisingly, various studies have said that we can only control maybe 10 to 15% of our life. Think about that. We can only control about 10 to 15% of our life and everything else that we can't control we tend to worry about, we become anxious over, and can be overwhelmed by. And here is Abram looking at the royal palace, one of the most powerful men in the world, and his wife's in there, and he's looking out at all this livestock that he has now accumulated, and I'm curious what he's thinking. God, I'll give it all back. Just bring me my wife. This wasn't worth it. Just bring me my wife. There's no narrative here. There's no comment from Abram as he's faced with this great reality. I believe, though, the point is this. When we come to the end of ourselves, as Abram certainly did, it is then that we look to God. That's true for us today. When we come to the end of ourselves, it is then that we look to God. So letter C in the outline is God's intervention. This will take us from 17 down to 20. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Again, there's no mention of Abram seeking God. There's no prayers. There's no crying out. There's no proclaiming as he did when he built the altar. There's just silence on Abram's part. So verse 17 says, The Lord struck Pharaoh's household with great plagues. We're not told what these plagues are, how long they lasted, how severe they were. They were great And in the midst of Abram's faithless, deceitful, scheming plan, God's faithfulness is celebrated. Do you see that? No mention of Abram crying out or praying, pleading with God, nothing, but God strikes the home of Pharaoh. So we aren't told in any detail what these plagues are. That word plague is generally understood to mean skin diseases, something like a leprosy, but it can't be exclusively that because we know of the plagues that would come upon the nation of Egypt at the hand of Moses. So it's very likely that there was some kind of a skin disease, something going on in the royal palace, and apparently Sarai is the only one unaffected. So her being the only one unaffected makes it pretty clear to everybody in the household that there's something different about this woman. Perhaps she's the cause of it. We need to figure out what's going on. So the details aren't provided, but it's apparent that there's some kind of an interview, perhaps an interrogation, that takes place in verses 18 and 19 because Pharaoh recites back to Abram the very plan that Abram told his wife to be a part of, this ruse about not being a wife but being a sister. That way it would go well with Abram. So Pharaoh knows she's Abram's wife, that Abram has been deceitful, and that by accepting Sarai into his harem, or his wife as Pharaoh calls her, 
This has brought damage and harm to his household. You see what a, what Pharaoh says here in verse 19 that I took her for my wife. So we don't have any idea how much time has passed. Probably not just a few days. I would guess weeks if not months that she's been in the royal palace while Abram has sat outside wondering how this has ever come about. So because Sarai is thought to be the source of this damage that has come to the house of Pharaoh, he wants them to go away. So most certainly, Pharaoh does not worship Yahweh, but he is a religious man since the newly settled world was filled with idolatry after the scattering at Babel. And as we know in later study, there were as many as 1,500 different gods, little g-gods, that were worshipped in Egypt. But we can only assume that Pharaoh attributes these plagues coming into his household by one of these gods that he may not know or may not worship. He doesn't know that there is a one true God, Yahweh. And so the only way he can rid his household of this calamity is to send Sarai and Abram away. And this is exactly what they do. Pharaoh's men escort Abram and Sarai out of Egypt. And Abram is able to keep all the things that Pharaoh has given to him in exchange for his wife Sarai. Now, I want to pause right there and say this was not God's blessing of Abram. This was Pharaoh's fear of this God that could bring this calamity into his household. And if he did that because I brought this married woman into my home, what would he do if I took all these gifts back? He didn't want to risk it. So while Abram does enjoy the fruit of this deceitful, scheming plan. Don't think that this was God's plan. Don't think that this was God's way of blessing Abram for his deceitful scheme. It just happened to be something that became a blessing for Abram as he was going to venture on his own way. So verse, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1 serves as a conclusion to this narrative and it also provides a segue into the next section. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. So Abram was incredibly blessed by God to suffer no lasting harm as a result of this deceitful plan. But the narrative that we've looked at has more to do with God's faithfulness than it does the blessing of Abram or his lack of faith. What this shows me is that God's sovereign plan cannot be stopped even through the faithlessness of this first patriarch through whom all of Israel will claim its ancestry. This hero of the faith fails miserably. And what we're going to see when we eventually get to chapter 20 is that he repeats this exact same deceitful ruse when he comes up against King Abimelech. He didn't learn his lesson at all. <laughs> How quickly do we learn our lessons? Isn't that right? And then this faithlessness, faithfulness of God, this problem, this provision of God, doesn't that continually, continuously run as a circle in our lives? And so it is with Abram. 
God's sovereign plan will not be stopped. Abram is a man of great faith, but he is also weak, and he is feeble, and he is apt to fail, just as each of us are also. Through all of that, God's goodness and faithfulness will never, ever waver. You know, as we look back at our lives, and as we see the incredible work of God, the things that He has done in calling us out of our salvation, out of our paganism into salvation, where He has made a way when there really seemed to be no way, when God has orchestrated circumstances that bring about our good, apart from anything that we could ever do, we look back on those events and we say, thank you, thank you, God. And we come up to the next circumstance and we go, uh-oh, what am I going to do? This looks really big. This is going to be hard. I don't know what's going to happen. And we totally forget about this faithful God that is capable of doing far more than we think or imagine. I believe at heart we are very, very natural and we are in the process of being trained to be spiritual so that when we come up against these issues, our inclination is to stop and to drop and to pray. That's what we got to do. Abram did not do that. He doesn't do enough of that. Yet he will still be a hero of the faith and he will exhibit extraordinary faith as we continue our study of him. Let's pray together. Father.